Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast. And if you are joining us for the first time, then welcome. We're delighted to have you. I'm James Gray from the iNewspaper and iNews.co.uk. As always, I'm joined by George Belshaw of Metro.co.uk and Calvin Beton, renowned and respected tennis coach in some quarters anyway. Uh, George, how are you? I'm pretty good. I, I was just saying to Calvin before you came on, I've uh, had a weekend away in Manchester with my uh, uni pals. We've had our first like reunion since the pandemic kind of ended. So I'm a little, uh, I'm, I'm in a stage of recovery, I would say, but feeling a lot better than yesterday. <laughs> Good to hear. Calvin, you, you've been on your travels around Europe and you're back now. Are you glad to be back at the bright lights of Barnsley? Um, yeah, absolutely. It's as um, metropolitan and cosmopolitan as it always has been. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, got back Very on good. Friday. But I actually, I, I went, I got back on, sorry, I got back on Saturday, uh, sorry, Friday, and I watched a football match and went to a gig on Saturday. So, Two things that I've not done in about 18 months. So that was good. Big weekend for you. James, it sounds like you've just arrived on the back of quite an emergency. Well, not really. It's just that sometimes the back wheel <laughs> of my bike sometimes the back wheel of my bike falls off, which is slightly less disconcerting than it sounds. It only happens when stationary, but it just so happened that it happened when I had to like dash out and do something. And then it's always when you're in a hurry, it went to pieces. So my hands are now covered in bike grease. And uh, I don't really know what day of the week it is. And I'm sweaty and warm. But other than that, everything's fine. I'm I'm fully fit. I'm not injured. I've not hurt myself. Which is more than can be said for the man who I think will feature most in our podcast today, Roger Federer. He announced uh, on Sunday evening, as usual, sports people making big announcements at times when journalists are trying to get off home or aren't even on duty, or in my case, had just arrived back from holiday. He revealed that he was pulling out the US Open and the Labour Cup. He's going to have more surgery on uh, his knee. If you've not read or, or seen his Instagram video, uh, here's the sort of flavour of what he said. He said, I'll be on crutches for many weeks and also out of the game for many months. 
going to be difficult in some ways, but at the same time, I know it's the right thing to do because I want to be healthy. I want to be running around later as well. I also want to give myself a glimmer of hope to return to the tour in some shape or form. I'm realistic. I know how difficult it is at this age right now to do another surgery and try it, but I want to be healthy. George, your kind of instant reaction to that? Not looking good, is it? Um, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we had a bit of a conversation, didn't we, a few weeks ago about how many we thought of Murray, Serena and Federer would be back at Wimbledon next year and how likely that was. And, you know, I think I think we were all kind of like, we thought one might not make it. I, I, I mean, Federer's, for me, I, I don't see him coming back now, really. Um I know people get very annoyed when you try and start writing athletes obituaries and whatever and like ruling them out and they'd love to come and prove you back. But on the back of a third knee surgery, he turned 40. I, I, I see this more of an operation of like enjoying the rest of your life and perhaps getting one farewell gig in a kind of Labour Cup setting. I, I, I just really struggle to see how he gets back to the tour. I mean, he's basically been off for a year and then come back and lasted three tournaments four mm. tournaments um well i suppose he had that mini comeback didn't he in february off again for three months slightly longer comeback in paris halle wimbledon and now off for another year i mean i mean that's just not sustainable um i, I just don't see how he's gonna make it back really calvin i mean are you, are you in the same sort of boat um, I, I'm yeah, as part of things he might play one or two more tournaments. Um, but he always said that when he left, it wouldn't be a big sort of farewell tour or anything. He'd just say he was finished. I guess similar to what Sampras did, um, or the same as what Sampras did. So I never bought into the old farewell year type thing. Um, I think the problem is he's I mean, since he had this surgery, he's never seemed happy, has he? I've, mm. I've watched most of his matches, and he always seems to be sort of trepidatious about his movement especially in his press conferences after he's always been talking about it as if kind of as if it wasn't really a success or it wasn't as successful as he wanted to be um and most of all he's basically wasted not through any fault of his own but 18 months has just gone in when you're 40 you can't just like have 18 months where you don't do anything um so even if he wanted to come back by the time he comes back it's with the exception of maybe five or six matches, he's going to be sort of two and a half years without hardly playing any tennis. So I, I think as as a as a competitive entity, I think he, he it's well I not think I think he is done on that. Um, he might come back and play. I expect he'll still keep playing Labour Labour Cup. I expect he'll do that for another couple of years. Um, even if I think even if it's a case of that they they might alter the format of that to have like a, a veteran, a couple of veterans in as well, um, just to make it different. So I think we'll see him on a tennis court again. There's no question of that. But as a competitive top five player, I think that's that's boats, that ship sailed now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned like how different he's been since he's come back. I, I know it's always very boring remarking on the media side, but one of the things that's just been so notable is like the difference in between him like after losses now. It's gone from being straight in, get out of there, kill it, get it, get this done onto the next to a long period after the match where he's sitting there reflecting, going through things with his team, coming out, giving a bit more of a, a sculptured view to the media. Uh, and that's just never been like him at all. And I, I do genuinely think every 
every time he's coming off the court at the minute, it's like, am I going to be able to play again almost? And I, mm-hmm. you know, this comeback, I don't want to say it's been a disaster because he, he you know, he reached the quarterfinals of Wimbledon. Like that result in context has really <laughs> kind of changed, I suppose. But I mean, just looking at how he's been the whole time, I mean, it's clear he's not enjoyed it. Um, and that's kind of what is the thing you take from his statement most, I think, is that he just wants to feel that enjoyment of kind of wider life again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I like Calvin's idea about the kind of the legacy stars turning up or the veterans or the legends of the game turning up, having, you know, if they turn that format for that particular part of it into like 10-point tie breaks or something as a bonus point on each day, that's quite a nice, easy thing that he could probably manage. And I think he'll still do his little exhibitions that he was starting to do in like Bogota and places like that. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's just very hard to see how he navigates the way back from here now. The problem with, I guess the problem without the legacy uh, issue where I've thought about is that like, he's obviously miles better than anyone else who, who we may play against. Mm. <laughs> like, so like, he's still legitimate. Like we forget, we think it's like, we've given him a bit, not stick, but we sort of treat him like he's a decrepit now. He just made the quarterfinals of Wimbledon. Yeah. Like, yeah, sure, sure. Like his 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 draw was a bit was quite nice for him, but he still made the quarterfinals. Like no no one else who's forty years old is making the quarterfinals of Wimbledon or getting yeah. close to it. So I'm not sure he could do that. I think the problem with tennis, as as Andy Murray pointed out a few um, a few weeks ago, is that you can't really ever come back and and sort of work your way back in. It's not like football where you can come and have. 20 minutes at the end or even kind of have the sort of career that I guess like I guess kind of what Edison Cavani has with with Man United where he's expected to just play sort of 60 percent of the minutes that kind of thing I mean forget Edison Cavani seven years younger than Roger Federer as well um it's you just can't really you can't do that if you want to compete you have to play you can you can taper your schedule so you don't play as many tournaments but when you're in the tournaments you got to play every day and and that's how it works there's there's no way around it you can't play once a week and do that so if right now we're predicting the number of atp tournaments roger federer has left how many are we putting out there three i think, I, I think less than five yeah, i think yeah. we're all in agreement on that I, I think we might get two i can see him as i've already written Playing the Swiss indoors, as I've said repeatedly. <laughs> You're um, desperate for the Swiss indoors to finish. Absolutely it. desperate for the Swiss indoors, and then maybe I can see him like playing a Stuttgart or something, or a Halle, sorry, um, in an effort to maybe get ready for Wimbledon and then not not play Wimbledon or something like that. That's probably where do, I go. Do we know how long this is likely to be? I mean, obviously he's out for this year, but is it like he could potentially be ready in January, or is it more likely to be a year? I mean, I think he's he's looking at Australia, isn't he? I mean, he's not said that. I, I again, I don't. Th- I think, I think Australia would still be a massive surprise to me in terms of the situation there and what he can do with taking his family out and stuff. I, I don't see him necessarily that particular slam being the one he forces his way. Yeah. Into. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I I don't know. I mean, realistically, I, I think it'd be a similar timeline. To this time last year, where he was looking for about a kind of February return, um, but it, I don't know. At, at the minute, I just I really can't see how he how he's going to make it back again. Given, I think it's pretty pretty relevant what he said in that, and I know you kind of alluded to it, George. But 
you know, to, to kind of try and nail stuff to facts a little bit, what he said is, uh, this is this surgery is the right thing to do because I want to be healthy. I want to be running around later as well. You know, as I always say with this stuff, he's thinking about playing tennis with his kids. You know, they're getting to an age now where he can have a hit with them. And maybe when they're 13, 14, he wants to be able to be on court with them and then hit reasonably competitively. And, you know, I can only imagine that mixed doubles at the Federer Summer House are going to be extremely competitive given the uh, the various members of the family who who can hold a racket. And I, I genuinely think, you know, I've always said it about Murray that he is now in in the kind of region of risking being able to bend down and pick his kids up in the garden. And you don't want to jeopardise that. Sport is only a third of your life, probably, you know, for Federer. And, and I think these guys do know that there's more to it. Yeah, and I, I think the other question that is hanging on my brain is that what's there actually to gain from coming back now? You know, you kind of said, James, that he said there's going to be no farewell tour. I don't see like a long farewell tour, but the only thing I can see him wanting to come back for is a good bye. I mean, he's, we've said he's not going to be top level competitive. I, I just think that's impossible. And that's having seen him. Okay. Yeah. He got to the quarters of Wimbledon. I know that's really good, but you can't build your whole career on like the small grass court swing and the hard court matches. He wasn't really there in the ones we saw for me he was really disappointed with how he played and there were a few grass matches like that as well I mean he, okay he got some wins at the French Open he still is Roger Federer he's still unbelievably talented but every tournament was taking so much out of him clearly that it's just not a sustainable way to kind of carry on I, I, I'm just not sure what he has to gain from coming back to tour tennis you know I can see him having a great exhibition life where he does things one match a month or one night a month where he goes, visits a new city, takes tennis to a new place, gets that kind of fan atmosphere, keeps building the game in a different way. But I don't see what he gains from the rigors of the tour now. Connors' title record's gone. Djokovic and Nadal will be out of sight soon enough. Okay, records aren't everything, but what is there that he can't get from doing exhibition stuff as well? Well, I think it's the the competitive spirit. I think it's a bit like what Murray said. I, I don't see them as that similar characters, but I do think that they're both competitive tennis players and both desperate to be competitive. And, uh, you know, Murray, we've seen what he's done in the last six, eight, 12 months, you know, going and playing really low-level tournaments just because he loves the scrap and the fight. And while I think Federer is an understated person and a serenity on the court, we forget that he is still an extremely competitive person. And I really do think that they just can't give up, you know, and as Calvin said, he made the quarterfinals of Wimbledon. He's probably still the 20th best player in the world. And while they still can see themselves playing at that level, which Federer has and can, I think they find it very hard to, to you know, to sit at home and watch, I don't know, Borna Chorich win an ATP title would probably really annoy Federer because he would think, well, I could have won that title. I, th I think the comparison with Murray is a good one because I'm pr still pretty sure that his body is probably in better shape than Murray's as we speak right now. It's like, he, he looked, even, even without this knee surgery, like he can actually run and play. I, it just seems that he's, a bit, he's in a bit of discomfort, whereas M Murray hasn't done anything like got to the quarterfinals of a slam for, for a while. And Miles the French um, Federer if he'd have if he'd have stayed in it, but mm. whereas Murray sort of 
you know, we're, we're celebrating if he wins a round in a slam. Um, but there's, he seems to be carrying on going. He yeah. seems to be saying, although I do think maybe it would, that this this hardcore swing in the US will will be quite telling if he if Murray goes out again early three times. I think we then might be getting into well, what's the point in this? But he might not go out. At, the first time he's had a good spell where he's practiced a lot, I think. So I'm really interested to see how he does over the next few weeks. I kind of agree with you there in the same situation. I'd say the one key difference between Murray and Federer's comeback is that Federer's had this commanding seeding the whole time. Like he's coming into draws, always in a good position. Yeah. Murray so often is playing like a top 10 player, first or second match. And he's still won a few of them. I just think, you know, Federer can kind of come in. And and also a difference, I suppose, is that Federer needs a lot fewer matches to kind of get ready than like a Murray or a Djokovic or a Nadal because they're such more like a traditional player. Like Federer is just such a natural you know, playing style and whatever that he, he says it doesn't warm up. And uh, yeah, I think, yeah, well, I mean, we'll probably no doubt talk about what his legacy leaves. I'm not sure there's ever been a more natural tennis player who just <laughs> can go and do it on a whim. Yeah, no, it's, it's game style for sure. I mean, Murray has to. Murray has won three slams, been world number one, and got to where he has in the game by basically chasing and having. You know, he's got shots as well. He's phenomenally talented, great ball striker. His movement is his biggest weapon, and he doesn't have that anymore. It, Federer's injury hasn't actually affected his game style at all. It's just whether he can actually play. Um, but yeah, I, I I hear you. That there, there is that. He's got seedings. He's had slightly better draws. Although Murray has. He's not big. I don't think Murray would have beaten some of the players who Federer's beaten um, at Wimbledon and at the French. Um, looking at his results, yeah, Norrie's a good example, isn't he? I mean, yeah, that's a pretty good win on paper for. Mm. But I don't think Murray would be pulling off at the moment. Um, just to bring in the listeners, we ran a poll on um, our Twitter page at Love Tennis Pod, uh, asking people whether they thought he would ever play again. Twenty-six um, percent said yes. Thirty-one uh, percent said no, but the the leading answer was the forty-one percent who said yes, but not elite level, which I think probably chimes in with you, George, that he will go out and play, you know, some money spinners and raise some money for for charity, which he's obviously done incredibly well over the last couple of years, and and maybe a few exhibitions as well, which I think pretty much sits fairly well. And um, you you mentioned George in terms of records, what what he's still playing for, what he could reach, what he could. It, for me, it's what he can defend, you know, the records that he still holds, because he's obviously tied with Nadal and Djokovic on 20 men's Grand Slam titles as the all-time record holder. You would think that both of them will go past him, uh, and he almost certainly won't, won't win another one. Um, he, he's record of 31 men's Grand Slam finals. Uh, Djokovic is only one behind him on that, so you would think that Djokovic will almost certainly um, pass him there. Um reaching all four Grand Slam finals in one season three times. Uh, clutching at straws a bit when we're finding standalone <laughs> Federer records that won't get passed. Um, ten consecutive men's Grand Slam finals, that's a pretty good one. Uh, I mean, Djokovic, frankly, if he, if he stays fit, could, could break it in this run. But, um, yeah, there aren't many there that he could really extend. I guess, George, you, you were talking about the Connors record. That That's the titles, is it? Yeah, most titles, 109, I think. Right. Um, I think for Federer, it's still 102, three or four, something like that. I mean, he, he's, he's significantly off. 103, yeah. Um, significantly off that I, I can't see him matching that unless he 
weirdly decides to dedicate his life to just playing 250s and nothing else. Um, and even then, that's going to be tough. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think realistically, every record that's the standalone argument to be the greatest player of all time is is gone, realistically. I mean, Djokovic has swallowed it. Um, he's already got the weeks at number one. Okay, he may or may not get to the titles, but if if that was a, the standalone thing, then we'd all be talking about Jimmy Connors being the GOAT, whereas I think people would just say he perhaps had the longest-lasting de- desire to kind of carry on. You know, he was playing at a pretty similar age to Federer by the end. Um, you know, there's not really much sticking around on its own on very boring, logical numbers, so the things that will leave Federer even in that conversation in two years, I don't think. Wimbledon. After, yeah, watching, after watching the uh, Gavias defense, I'm always about won by Connors because it seems like sort of in the in the seventies, no one really knew where anyone was playing or anything. So <laughs> I wonder if he just had, just added a few. <laughs> Is that, that like like Pele's thousand goals that include like <laughs> goals he scored in the playground when he was six? I saw the the, the the funniest one on that was somebody put last week. Like, does does Pele count the goals that he scored in Escape to Victory? <laughs> and then someone replied with, he counts the goals he scored in, in rehearsals. For, 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 for <laughs> but yeah, Connor's yeah. like, you, you know, where, where, is there any record of these titles? Because the VS thing seemed to be like, like every sort of three or four months, someone would just rig in and tell them what they've won. And the rankings yeah. would be based on that. It was the Wild West, wasn't it, in the 70s? I mean, I always think that comparing those records, like we should get a bit stricter about like, compartmentalizing eras because like you know rod laver and doing stuff in the, the very beginning of the open era 1969 doing he did the the grand slam right like that just has no relevance like it's it's a it's 52 years ago it's a completely it's not even a remotely similar game i mean even even watching tennis from the late 90s you think is this the same sport anymore um, I, th- I think on that, I think this is where tennis is difficult because I think in football, you kind of can. The, 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 the tournaments that you compete for in football have always kind of been the same for the last 60, 70 years. And with some the odd exception of how the Champions League, the European Cup has changed and who they accept, it, it's still the same tournaments. But tennis, after, after watching that Vias documentary, and then recently I read a book about the McEnroe and Borg rivalry and Garolitis and Connors, that kind of thing, you, it only strikes you how different tennis changed basically around about the mid-80s in terms of we kind of are on the same run now as we have been since about 1985, 83, 84, 85. The same tournaments are still running. The ranking system is basically the same. But before that, it was, like you said, it was the Wild West. They were still playing, back then they were still playing mostly, like Connors and McEnroe were probably, their schedule was probably still about, 35 40 percent exhibitions mm. which is unthinkable now yeah i was thinking this the other day someone i mean we're going off topic here but why not um someone posted on twitter after the latest slew of withdrawals and i note that in the last hour or two borna chorich pulled out the us open because he's having shoulder surgery um someone pointed out that tennis's biggest problem actually i think it was mike dixon at daily mail said that a, a tv exec had said to him Tennis's biggest problem is that its biggest stars don't play enough. Now, that certainly, you would say, is true of the likes of Federer, Djokovic, and Dar Murray. That's obviously got some mitigating circumstances to it. But, George, I'd be interested, because I know you've done a lot of scheduling work. Um, 
Do you think that once those guys have passed over the game, the likes of Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev will start playing 12, 13, 14 tournaments a year rather than 18 or 19 or 20? I, th I think there's just been a bigger power shift among those kind of smaller groups in terms of the amount of revenue they're making away from the court being such a, a, a driving factor in everything they do. I mean, I think Federer last year was still kind of top five on the Forbes list and made like 25,000 in terms of on the court stuff. So right. Talking about like 80 million or whatever coming from off-court earnings. So, yeah. you know, in terms of a reality of where these athletes are and what they are earning, I mean, it's a no-brainer. So I know Federer's been injured anyway, but it's, it's not like there's this desire to get, get out there week in, week out. So the, the obvious comparison now is to the guys we think could lead the sport and whether Medvedev, Sissipas, those sort of players will ever command those sort of fees to kind of upset that balance again. Um, mm. uh, and that the answer to that is we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, tennis is going to have to reinvent itself, but it, it does this through every generation. I mean, we always get to this point where we have these massive stars leaving and everyone is quite doom and gloom for a bit, like, where's it going to go from this? And someone will take off somewhere somehow. I mean, Coco Goff being an obvious example. I mean, you know, she kind of came out of nowhere as a 15, 16 year old at Wimbledon. Okay, not out of nowhere within the tennis circles, but she's already a, a massive star, even though she's not really won anything yet. So in terms of that natural star quality coming through, everyone knows who Naomi Osaka is now. Okay, it's not quite happened on the men's game in terms of the off-court earning and the brand work that's coming with that at the minute, but people like Sissipas have huge potential, um, you know, kind of natural Greek gog figure or whatever to kind of hit a wider audience. It's just it's harder to do that when these guys are still around winning all these tournaments and kind of stealing the marketing pie as well. So I kind of agree with Mike at the minute that I think tennis is in this situation where its biggest stars have no need, no desire to turn up every week and no one can question them for what they've brought to the sport. Um, but in terms of the health of the sport right now, I think it will take maybe four or five years minimum to recover from this period where the newer stars aren't getting enough of the limelight and it doesn't really matter they're playing every week because people want to see these other people who are choosing not to. Mm. I was just looking up because it sort of got me thinking about number of tournaments people play a year and looking at someone like Sampras and he pretty rare, you know, pretty much around the 20 mark. And then actually once he became as dominant as he was, it then dropped down like under 20. It's clearly, you know, makes sense because you play more matches when you, when you win more, but it's just interesting to see how that, how that trend might develop. Um, yeah. Sorry, George, you're going to say. say and let's not forget, you know, 20 means 20 weeks of the year. So, and, mm. and some of these are two week tournaments. I mean, that's not a small portion of the year for an athlete, you know, yeah. footballers are playing what, once a week okay twice a week for you know the highest two or three times a week for the highest level footballers but you know if you're a, a tennis player who's winning the majority of the tournaments or reaching the final of the majority of them that's a that's a pretty decent shift all year long to be playing every other week I, i'm not sure it's such a crisis at that stage but I, you know someone like Federer's not really played more than i'd guess he played more than 12 tournaments now for the last four years I think also something that they're saying I don't know if people know how the ranking system if the listeners know how the ranking system works but they only count your your best 18 weeks so 
for someone like once you get to like kind of Sam Prass's level, he's going to be pretty confident he's making semis final winning every tournament he plays. So from a ranking point of view, there's no sense in him playing 30 tournaments because 10 of them, even if, if he wins every tournament, 12 of them don't count towards his ranking at all. So it, it, I think the same with, with the better players. They start figuring out, yeah, I'm, I'm going to make the last stages, so it's not really going to affect anything. The only exception to that was Murray, where he went on that run where he was just he knew he spotted a chance for world number one if he played basically everything. Yeah, and 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 again, like in terms of just the reality of what your body can take when you're a younger athlete, you're going to have first round losses that don't take things out of you that physically. So Sissipas could go somewhere, lose first round, bounce back next week because he's not going to be in that kind of exertion yeah. for him. So. You know, it's, it's just something that happens with the career, but I suppose now we've just hit such a point where these players don't need to turn up so much. Um, but, you know. I, I think that there is a kind of a slight issue. What what we could be, we should be a bit wary of is that tennis has never really been in a, a situation as it is now, where one player is so dominant and potential to be so dominant going forward. There's always been somebody else that you think could potentially beat them, but now we're at a stage where, like, if Djokovic plays all right. And he doesn't hit hit umpires with balls. You can see him winning all of the next eight Grand Slams potentially. Yeah. That's not a great situation to be in. There's always been a situation where you make him favorite. There's a difference between him being favorite, but then you always thought, well, you know, that with the combination of Murray, Nadal, Federer, Wawrinka, one they have beaten him in slams. They could beat him in slams, uh, in finals. Whereas now you look at it and you think, well, there's nobody. And that could that could make, for the casual fan, that could start to seem pretty boring. If Federer's not there, if Murray's not there, if Nadal's not there, and Djokovic is just cleaning everyone out, that's not really good for the sport. And that's quite an interesting context point of this US Open because I think we all kind of agree that the thing that could stop Djokovic most is kind of himself here, like the kind of pressure he's putting on himself. Okay, there's this little injury that will be interesting to watch as well. But as Calvin says, if Djokovic hits 70 to 80% of what he can do, which he does pretty much every time he steps on the court, it requires someone to play at 100%, which over five hours is just so tough and difficult. But I do feel like the, if he does get over the line here, wins all four Grand Slams, in his own head, that aura of invincibility is just going to grow to such a stage where there is no pressure almost to a degree. Like he'll just be like, right, I've done this. I can keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. But if he loses this one, that could suddenly just drag him down slightly. But yeah. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Like is team playing US team planning on playing it. Team's not confirmed. Right. Okay. Cause he would be the only player I think who has beaten him. Who's beaten Djokovic more than once at a slam. Who'd be playing. Crikey, now you're asking. Uh... <laughs> I mean, he's obviously like randomly lost to like. I mean, it'd be Murray. Murray yeah. being another one to slam. And, um... I mean, uh, rapper. I suppose we should say is he's not out officially. Right. Okay. okay. Um... Yeah. So I I was writing something this morning and I had to check that and I was like, is he not? I just assume. I'm just assuming he's not going to play it. Yeah. He, he's not. He's not officially out. I mean, he's gone back to Mallorca to try and get ready. He says his was better after the match but couldn't face playing the next couple of weeks but, but yeah, the players I'm, who, I'm expecting him to withdraw but he, he's not officially out players who have 
beaten him, who I've you know sort of semi regularly beaten him in slams, Wawrinka, Murray, Nadal, Federer, Del Potro, they're not there. So mm. you know, team has beaten a team beat him three times in slams. Definitely twice at the French. Uh, no, just the two. Yeah, just those two. Roland uh, Garros. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, find a couple of other people who've beaten him multiple times at slams. I am struggling, I can I tell you. There is. I don't think there is anybody else. There's not many people who have beaten him multiple times. Yeah. Not many people have beaten him at slams. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's more than you'd think. Thomas Burditch has beaten him multiple times at slams, although one of them was a retirement. And he's not. Uh, I'm Burditch wondering. Well, number four for years. I mean, he, you know, he was a pretty high level. Stan Wawrinka has beaten him four times at Grand Slams. It's pretty he's, impressive. Stan's not playing, though, is he? Uh, no, he's not, is he? Yeah, he's on the long list of players who aren't playing. So, yes, basically what we're saying is it takes a heck of a lot to beat Djokovic once at a slam and even more to beat him twice at a slam. Um, and despite what we had an argument in our Twitter mentions this week about how likely he was to win the US Open, he is very likely to win the US Open, at least... Somewhere between fifty and eighty percent, but never mind. Uh, we'll we'll come on to that a little bit more next week, no doubt. Um, one of the main challenges, perhaps the main challenger to his supremacy in New York, is going to be Daniil Medvedev. Uh, he beat Riley Opelka last night in the final in Toronto. Uh, another of the big servers downed after John. We looked like we might get an Isner versus Opelka final, which we were all praying for, I'm sure. Uh, but Daniil Medvedev downed them both. It was incredibly just processional, I thought. Um, Riley Apelka's serve didn't fire particularly. He's obviously six foot eleven, hits an enormous serve, and I think he was in. He'd maybe hit four aces by the time the second set started, which, you know, this is a double-digit guy usually. So um, credit to Medvedev there, George. I mean, an incredible returning performance once again. He completely nullified the Isner serve, and then do you think it helped him having played Apelka in the previous match? I mean, I think you, you do have to start looking at who the guy is on the other side of the net when these guys start having what you might call an off day on serve. I think they're so used to turning up knowing that if they get the ball in the majority of the time, it is he's going to win most points or put them in a position to win more points than it's not. But players like Medvedev, or like where Medvedev's putting himself in a category now with Djokovic, Murray, Nadal or whatever, is the ability to make them go for that line even more, where the pace isn't enough to beat them, and that that's where they start bringing percentage down and down, and you know it becomes so difficult. And you know Medvedev to win four sets in a row, six two, six two, six four, six three against Isner and Opelka, it is pretty impressive. That just shows he has his eyes in. Um, you know I think that's his fourth Masters title now, um, and they've all come across the last two years. It, it, we've said it time and time again on a hardcore, only Djokovic really consistently holds a candle to what he's able to do. Um, yeah, I, I mean, he, he. I know we keep <laughs> flopping between who the real contenders are. You know, Zverev sort of brought himself into the conversation with the Olympics, but if you're looking at the guy who's consistently doing it on these US hard courts, it, it is Medvedev. He is definitely the one to beat who's not Djokovic. Hmm. Um, Calvin, the Medvedev-Djokovic matchup. I mean, uh, how do you see it? How do you analyse it? 
if if I hadn't watched this year's Australian Open, I'd be much more enthused in thinking that Medvedev could beat him at mm. one. But he absolutely destroyed him in our party. <laughs> I'm not sure that Medvedev can actually... Medvedev's one of those players who you don't get ups and downs. He's, he's a bit mental. So in that regard, you get ups and downs. But I think once he gets to a Grand Slam final, he's kind of going to bring what he's going to bring. There's no, there's no like, well, if he plays well, he's kind of going to serve. His first serve percentage is always kind of what it is. And he hits a length and he waits for the opponents to miss. He's not, he's not kind of like, he's not a Stan Wawrinka or a one Martin Del Potro where you think if he brings his nine out of 10 game, Djokovic is in trouble, even if Djokovic plays well. He's so I just kind of get the feeling that the same thing would happen again. I, th- I think if it's in a, in a master series, I think Medvedev's 50-50 with him. But he gets to a slam final and Djokovic destroyed him. I mean, it is worth saying that I do think there, Djokovic is different in Australia to the US. I mean, it's, it is a different opponent. You know, we've seen him pull many people's pants down over the years who you kind of went into the match thinking, you know, they, they've got a, an outside shot. I think the other thing that, which Calvin's kind of talking about there is, or alluding to is like, I think, when we're talking about the top players not playing so much regularly, I do think that is hurting guys like Medvedev as well. I think he, he, if he'd have played him since in a tighter best of three set match, you know, it does kind of build a bit of confidence to that. So if, if we're saying they're going to get to between their last meeting being the US, the Australian Open final to the US Open final, it's, it's hard not to think that would affect Medvedev mentally and having seen what Djokovic has been able to do over those months since to not kind of arrive with fear um, in a way that like a team perhaps wouldn't knowing he's had a lot of, okay, he lost to Djokovic in five at the Australian Open final the year before, but he will feel he's pushing him closer and beaten him twice on clay and got this kind of mental baggage off that Medvedev hasn't. Um, and that, that's not saying he's not had success against Djokovic in the past. You know, he's won three of their eight meetings, which is, not a bad record against a guy who's been you know, the best player in the world comfortably um, for the last couple of years. So, yeah, I, I still think he's as good a chance as anyone to beat Djokovic, but I, I think Djokovic will need to do a fair bit of beating himself still at this stage. Mm. I find it interesting, George, you mentioned in, in your show notes that um, he's now won four, four career Masters titles, is that right? Um, and all in a, a two-year period. I was just kind of looking at, well, partly the guys he beat, um, he has an excellent matchup as far as I can tell with big servers. Like he, you know, if you look at the guys he beat in Toronto this week, it's Apelka, Isner and Huber Hercatch, um, Duckworth and Bublik are okay, in the early rounds, so you just expect him to beat on talent. But, you know, they're all guys who obviously do rely on a, on a pretty big serve. I, I'm also quite intrigued by the guys who've beaten him at that level. Um, the, do you know who the person to beat him in his last, the last two times he's lost in a hardcore Masters are? I mean, a Masters. I was going to say, he lost it. I don't think it was a Masters, but he lost to Kyrgios that summer on the hardcourts. Yeah, it wasn't a Masters. That, though. That wasn't that, Roberto Bautista Agut yeah. is, has beaten him twice, once in Cincinnati last year and once in Miami this year. And I wonder what, and, and then I looked at kind of at all the guys, like he lost to Shardy in Paris. Nadal, obviously, um, the, these are guys who just get the ball back, right? Like, it's quite an interesting. I wonder if it tells us anything. I don't think Shardy's like that. Shardy's big serve 
and yeah, that's true. Like the ball, like that's the, the others for sure. Yeah, well, the Olympics one as well, wasn't it? Trainer Buster, he stops him there. That that felt like a shock on paper, but actually, Medvedev can struggle against guys who just keep getting the ball back, but he's doing good using their pace normally. Um, yeah. So he kind of needs he he needs a plan B against because realistically, if he's going to beat Djokovic. While Djokovic is a very complete player, one of the things he does better than anyone else is get the ball back, right? Like, it's something that he needs to work out a plan. I I don't even know how you'd approach that, Calvin, if you were... I mean, I'm not I'm not asking you to problem-solve uh, beating Djokovic on a hard court, but, like, if you're someone who is like Medvedev, who's, whose game very much is like that, how, how do you develop a plan B? Medvedev's quite good at... Well, we've been in this debate before where some people say he's like a chess player, he's a great problem solver. I don't really agree with that, if I'm honest. What he does do, though, is he'll throw some wild cards out. He's a bit nuts. He'll start going two first serves and serve volleying on second serves and um, and that kind of thing. He'll just start random in the net and rub shots at times, but when he's had success doing that, it kind of works in the short term. You can do that for a couple of games, like when he when he beat team at the um the O2, I think he did he did this sort of serve volley. Although I maintain everyone gave him credit for this brilliant tactical piece of tactical play of serve volleying on a second serve, I think it was, and he won the point. But team should have passed him. He yeah. was like one of the worst passers I've ever seen. <laughs> um and it, and if that was the case, team would have beaten him straight sets. It wasn't really Medvedev's team bottled it. Um but against Djokovic, you've got to do, you've got to do what you what you're going to do for five sets, which is what happens when Wawrinka, as you say, is beating him four times at slams. He blows him off court. He can hit clean winners past him for four for, for four or five sets. Del Potro's the same. Well, I don't know whether Del Potro's actually beat him at a slam, um, mm. off the top of my head. But he's beat. He's he's one of the players who has beaten him in big matches. He beat him because he beat him in the Olympics. Um, mm. And they can take the game away from Djokovic. I think that's the thing that Djokovic has this phenomenal amount of competitive charisma where he can bend the game to his want and his need. And I think he doesn't like it when players can take that away from him. And I'm not sure that Medvedev can take that away from him. Um, Let's move on. Uh, I think we will talk a lot more about this next week as well in the aftermath of Cincinnati and in the run-up to the US Open. Uh, we should note that this is a, that we had a pretty eventful week in the women's game. Uh, Camille Georgie, uh, who is up into the top 35 in the world at the age of 29, her first uh, title at this level. A decent run of names, by the way, that she beat on the way there as well. Pliskova, Mertens, Goff, and Kvitova in the final. Um, oh, they were Pliskova in the final, wasn't it? Because she also beat Pliskova at the Olympics, I think, before losing to Svetlana. Um, George, one thing I noticed, and someone pointed out on Twitter, and I apologise for not being able to credit who it was, is that Camille Georgie's been in a great run of form, and she'd not had her dad in her box for a while, and I wonder whether there's been a change in approach that potentially has allowed her to finally, because people have talked about her before, finally kind of reach a, a decent elite level. Yeah, I mean, she's quite a uh, quite a fiery character i'd say who's quite um got great natural power um i I like watching her because it's kind of one of those players that you're not really sure what's going to happen whether it's kind of on court brilliance or you know as i don't want to 
completely typecast in nationality, but a lot of the Italian players, like a Fonini, you, you kind of watch him out of interest of what's going to happen. It's not necessarily just about the tennis. She's a little bit in that category in terms of there can be a bit of a, a blower. Um, but she's, you know, I think for what's been the change in her game in terms of like she would lose regularly to top 20 opponents. I don't think she had won a top 20 match since like September 2019 before this year's, the end of this year's French Open. And she's got seven since, won something like 16 of 20 matches. Um, and just seems to be kind of still hitting big, but more measured, I would say. Mm. Like, not so wild. Um, yeah, I think it's a good thing to see. How far that can take her remains to be seen. But as, as Calvin will tell us every time on this, we're still in a situation with women's tennis where the best players are not consistently reaching the semifinals of every tournament that we think they should be. And that does leave pockets of space um, for different players who we might not expect to do so well to kind of stake their claim. Um, quite often those players are not the ones who are necessarily informed before the tournament, but that's by the by. But if she can mm-hmm. take that form going into it, why not? And I think she's someone right now you don't want to be playing in the first few rounds. You want her in a later round if she's going to get there because it's a less familiar situation and she's thinking, oh man, now could be my time. And that's where a lot of these players who are having these runs suddenly fall down when the realisation comes, I could win this thing. But in these first four, three to four rounds, incredibly dangerous outliers who are not thinking too far ahead, but thinking, man, I'm winning a lot of matches. I'm hitting really well. I'm playing really big. Why can't I beat this person on this one given day? Yeah, I mean, there's some pretty rogue names that she has lost to on hard courts this year. You know, Lyudmila Samsonova, who admittedly then went on a bit of a run, so it doesn't look like such a terrible defeat. But, you know, Clara Torsen, Nadia Podoroska as well. She clearly is going to be one of those boom or bust players. But I suppose, Calvin, if someone comes into the US Open having won 60 of their last 16 of the last 20 matches, why not? Yeah, um, I guess it's the way she plays. She hits it very flat and hard. Um, the problem, what you often get with players like that, is that when the pressure gets on, because they play towards the margin, there's such little margin, when the pressure gets on, they tend to start missing. I, I don't think she's going to be making the latter stages of any slams anytime soon. Well, I'll just clip that for when uh, we're previewing the US Open yeah. Women's Final and Camille Georgie's playing. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I did predict that Novak Djokovic wouldn't win another slam about four years ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone well. Um, just, just finally, probably the other big news from the week, and we, we kind of alluded to it a bit more, um, Rafa Nadal pulling out of Toronto uh, with an injury. George, just, just talk us through exactly what, what he said about the injury, what kind of injury it is. Is this a foot problem? Is that right? Yeah, it's a foot problem. Um, I think, again, I, I think I said last year when we were talking about this, that this has been a longer-term problem, I think, than many have not necessarily acknowledged. Um, it could be the root cause of other problems he's kind of had, like trying to adapt to this. But, yeah, I mean, we were kind of saying last week, We'll know where he is if he loses again to Lloyd Harris uh, two weeks in a row and he didn't even turn up. So I, I suspect that tells us he's, he's not in a great place. At yeah. Um, I, at this moment in time, I'd be quite surprised if he played the US Open. I think travelling back to New Yorkers suggests to me he's probably not planning on going back. Yeah, um, agreed. 
but you don't know that there's a, still a few weeks in the bag for him. Um, so, yeah, it's not great. I mean, I, I wouldn't be that surprised. I'm not saying he will do this, but I'm not be, I wouldn't be that surprised if this actually turned out to be the end of his season as well, um, whether he makes it or not, just totally sort this out and reboot for next year because generally quite little for him to gain from the end of the season. Um, I mean, we, we're talking about Roger Federer at the age of 40 having surgery and how unlikely it is that he'll come back. I mean, when do we start talking about Rafa Nadal, who, who also hasn't played a tremendous amount of tennis, Calvin, in the last couple of months, like the last couple of years, really? It's a funny one, isn't it? Um, also, I was just it still baffles me. One of the great tennis stats is that Rafa Nadal has never won an indoor tennis tournament. Um, <laughs> and like, imagine if he ends his career like that. That would just be crazy. Bizarre. I, I I don't like. I don't think there'd be anything else like that. Somebody who's won twenty slams, probably one of the five best players ever, and hasn't won a tournament that is basically on a surface that is exclusively played on for the last quarter of the year. Is he? Um, I thought has he? Is he definitely not won one? I, I think he's won. A, he's certainly won an indoor clay one. I think. Or, yeah, I was going to say indoor clay. Yeah. I vaguely remember researching this stuff a long time ago. Um, where, where he's never won an indoor hardcore. Never indoor hard. But Where's there an indoor, indoor play? Like, it was like 2005, like really long time ago. Right. Okay. Um, oh, I tell you where he he has won indoor yeah, play. He has won indoor before. hard. Yeah, I think there was Madrid, one. Um, the 2005 Madrid Masters. Yeah. Right. Not well, to mention the Davis Cup Finals, I guess. But I know it's a team tournament, so it's a bit different. Right. But yeah, it's still kind of crazy. Oh no. On um on just just a quick caveat on tennis, but going slightly off topic a bit. I was you just reminded me of Davis Cup finals. I, w- I, w- I was trying to explain to a mate the other day who doesn't really know tennis how the Davis Cup works. <laughs> anyone to try and explain to somebody who doesn't know already how the Davis Cup works, it is impossible. Yeah. It is the most ludicrous tournament, like as it is now, that is imaginable. I mean, it was never easy with the relegation and promotion thing. No. That was always quite complicated. Yeah, but now even more so. That So it's a knockout. Yeah, it is a knockout, but it's not. And they play groups before, and, and it all takes place in like a week. It's crazy. But also not in the same place. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Mad. Clear where as mud. This year? Do we know? Is, where is the Davis Cup this year? It's all over the place. Uh, Turin, Bratislava, uh, somewhere else. I thought the whole point of this one was that it was in the same place. Yeah, they abandoned that idea within seconds of having it. Right. Is it, is it Turin? They've got they've got that MAP finals. I thought it was. Well, like I, I can't remember, George. I, I am pulling those places out of my ass. Yeah, Britain are in somewhere like um, Baku, oh, maybe. I don't know. Not Baku. No, it's like. Uh, oh, I'll tell you here, George. Innsbruck in Austria. Yeah, I was just Madrid that in Spain. And I did get one right. It is also in Turin. There you go. It is Turin. Mm. I had talent in my head for some reason. Yeah. Um, we got dragged off topic there, George. I was going to ask you um, why you're refusing to retire Rafael Nadal while you're so keen to re- re- retire Roger Federer. I assume it's because you're biased. <laughs> um, I think it's more that I think Nadal gears his seasons up to play clay all the time. Um, yeah. So uh, I still see him doing that three months for a few more years um but yeah I, I don't know it's always really hard to say isn't it i mean quite often we have kind of gut feelings on these injuries but the reality is we're we're never there behind the scenes knowing 
how significant it is or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, I still think he'll want to keep going with the franchise. And whether that changes, if, if say we got to the end of next year, Djokovic had beaten him two years in a row at the French Open and won every other slam in between. Would you keep going at that stage? Probably going to start looking quite bad for him. Mm. But I, I'm not sure these guys think quite like that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, trying to work out how these guys think is pretty much uh, how we spend our lives and we don't often get it right. But we do very occasionally. Um, I think that might be everything we've got time for this week. George, you've got any other business bursting out of your mouth, I'm sure. I just wanted to say, I thought the Coco van der Weyster this week was one of the moments that's <laughs> taken my breath away more than any other in about two years. I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was watching. Well, just for anyone who hasn't seen this particular YouTube video or Twitter video, Coco van der Weyster basically came back out after a heat break. Um, uh, by rule, the players were offered a warm-up, and if one of them says they want one, they have to do it. Um, her opponent said she wanted one, possibly a little cynically because she knew that Van der Vega was struggling in the heat. And Coco did the minimum required, but less, and just sort of refused to move her feet in the hitting and was basically just hitting either drop shots or sort of flapping it into the net. I mean, it looked like me playing tennis, to be honest. And with both hands. I mean, she was just flipping between left and right. And mm. I mean, it was astonishing, wasn't it? Um, Calvin, have you ever seen anything like that on court? No, I've never seen anything like it. And her rationale was just ridiculous as well. Like, I mean, if, if she was suffering from heat exhaustion, fair enough. But she was going to try and play a tennis match after that. I'm not sure the warm-up would have taken any... I've played in pretty intense heat. I've, I've coached in hotter than what it was out there. And, like, the warm-up's not taking anything out of you. It's just ludicrous, like, what she was doing. And there's about three people in the world who, have, who would have reacted like she did there. And it's not the first time, let's be honest, that she's acted like a bit of a dickhead. Um, <laughs> and, you know, just just nonsense. Idiocy. I think I would have done something similar, especially because I don't cope well with the heat. And basically, I had to conserve energy at every possible opportunity. I don't know. So you're one of Calvin's three people in the world, along with yeah, it's pretty much me. Who's the first? <laughs> it's obviously Nick Kyrgios. It's did, obviously did, me, Coco Van der Vega, and Nick Kyrgios. Did they get? Did they start the match against? They didn't finish it, did they? That night? No, they did start again, and then it started raining. And Bizarre. What I mean, play like? <laughs> what did she play like when they restarted? Like, cause if she started playing normally when it restarted, then yeah, if she was in a state and couldn't play normally, then fair enough. But. My understanding was that she came out and just started playing normal tennis after the warm-up. Yeah, seen that way, which yeah. I, I kind of respect even more. Like I, th I think <laughs> I, I think it's the perfect gamesmanship. Like there's nothing in the rules that you have to take it seriously. The warm-up, right? I'll tell you. I'll tell you a little story about Coco Vanderway. Actually, that she practiced with a lad who I used to coach. Um, not long after she'd made the final of the US, she made the final of the US Open or something like that. Vanderway. George, sad. Yeah, so she practiced because she was getting coached by Pat Cash in London, and um, they 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 asked if we could the lad who I coach could practice with her. So we went, and she wanted to play practice set. Um, so they played a practice set, and the lad I coach was five two up, and Coco goes right. Let's play a tie break instead of finishing the set, hmm. and then the tie breaks a ten instead of finishing the set. So then it got to eight three to him in the tie break and she went right right let's start another tie break to 10 and then it got to like eight four i think and she went right let's just finish there 
it was just the most bizarre like, afternoon of tennis where like it doesn't count as a loss, even though there's no one here and I'm playing against the. I mean, he was a world ranked male player, so it would have been no shame in it. But she was like, I'm under no circumstance am I taking any kind of defeat in these practice matches. I'm right into that. I'm I'm hugely on board with, with Coco Van der Baker and her her dedication to shithousery. I think uh, it's something the women's game needs more of. I'm, I'm right out there with it. Yeah. But thank you for alerting me to it, George. Otherwise, we might never have had Calvin's um, outstanding Coco Van Vega anecdote. Uh, it's all we've got time for this week. Uh, we'll be back, of course, next week uh, to preview the US Open, the final major of the year, the final major of George's uh, written tennis career, although he's not even bothering to do it. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll be back as normal. Uh, so in the meantime, do take care of yourself and uh, try and have some fun if you can. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.